So people of God in Christ, one thing that we have heard and, and hopefully learned uh, through uh, this sermon series on the book of Genesis is how connected uh, the whole Bible is. We, we rightly divide the Bible uh, into uh, Old Testament and New, uh, but Scripture is really one story. Even more, it's a wonderful story with God as the storyteller. Uh, but God is not just telling a story the way a, a novelist uh, tells uh, a story. Uh, if a novelist uh, writes a book, uh, he might be just making the story up. And that's fine. That's the way it should be, or at least it can be. Because a novelist might also be telling a story that uh, he or she had to learn from history. Uh, although then we would call it uh, not a novel Um, but a biography, perhaps, or even a a book of history. But God in the Bible is not just telling a story that he learned and decided to write down. This is God's own story. The Bible is the record of what God has done throughout the history of the world, from creation to the end, from Genesis through Revelation. So it shouldn't surprise us to learn by, uh, by coming to see uh, how there is really just one story in the Bible. Uh, it's made up of many shorter stories, but all fit within the one story of God's plan of salvation. And the Bible is even a well-written story, uh, we might say, uh, which shouldn't surprise us with God as the author. It doesn't just say, well, this happened, and then that happened, and then the next thing happened. Uh, Instead, like a well-written book uh, that can hold your attention if you give yourself to it, uh, the Bible uses foreshadowing and and prefiguration throughout. Uh, And given that the main message of the Bible is the gospel, the, the good news of Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners like us, we can constantly find much foreshadowing and prefiguration of Christ himself and his ministry on the cross to save us. And that's what we find in the story of Joseph. This morning, as we arrive at Genesis 37, um, we, um, um, we, uh, we begin with the story of Joseph. Here is a story, again, a story within a story, uh, a story that many in the world know partly because uh, there are still a good number of people who know something of the Bible, uh, but also because this story, as you well know, has been made into a a Broadway musical. But what people may not know, perhaps even a majority of those who, who know the story, what people may not recognize is how clearly, how how wonderfully, for Christians at least, the story of Joseph foreshadows and, and prefigures Christ. It's actually the, the name Joshua or Yeshua that is the Hebrew equivalent to its Greek form, Jesus. But it's Joseph, I think, who foreshadows and prefigures Christ the more. Joshua certainly foreshadows Jesus as he leads God's people into into Canaan and rallies the armies of Israel um, uh, to take possession of the land promised to them by God. And yet Joseph, especially by way of the, the details of his life, Joseph gives us a picture of the promised one, 
the Savior promised by God and foreshadowed along the way through the story of redemption. Uh, I would say this is going to be fun, but uh, fun is such a shallow word these days. So, so let me say, I think this will be enjoyable, very delightful for us as those who love Christ to uh, begin today, begin this week, and hear over the next uh, several weeks, the Lord willing, the story of the life of Joseph. The first point is a beloved son. And right out of the gate, right, uh, we can hear the connection. Joseph was the beloved son of his father Jacob. Jesus is the beloved son of his father in heaven. The first two verses of uh, Genesis 37 make the transition for us from Jacob to Joseph. Verse 1 records, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And that statement matches up, you might recognize it, with uh, what we recently heard of Esau departing to live in a land away from his brother and leaving the promised land to Jacob. Uh, there's that, that old saying, if you can't beat him, join him. But Esau didn't have that option. He came to know that he, he couldn't beat Jacob. The covenant blessings of God belonged to his brother, and he left which sets up this statement, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. But then the transition in in verse 2, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, Joseph being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. And verse 4 brings us to our first point. Now Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. So Joseph was the beloved of his father Jacob, even as Jesus was the beloved of his father in heaven. Uh, It was at the baptism of our Lord at the end of uh, Matthew 3, uh, when we are told that uh, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Uh, here, uh, by the way, is, is uh, one of the clearest revelations of the Trinity, the triune being of God, that He is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, even as the divine Son received the baptism of John, the Holy Spirit descended upon Him like a dove and rested upon Him, and the Father spoke From heaven, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Again, we hear it in the account of Jesus' transfiguration in Matthew 17. Matthew 17, verse 5 records, Behold, a bright light overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Even more, by way of such references, um, surely known to the church uh, in her earliest days, so the the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 1, verse 6, of the glorious grace of God with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. And again in Colossians 1, 13, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His Beloved Son. 
So what is the significance of, uh, of Jesus being not just the Son, but the beloved Son of the Father? Surely it, it conveys to me the, the degree of God's love for me, even to give so much of himself that, that it is said the Son whom he loved, it was his beloved Son who came in my flesh, to suffer and die in my place for my sins and thereby taking upon him, indeed God taking upon himself in the person of his son, the punishment due to me and setting me free from all condemnation. It's finally what Paul uh, means uh, when he writes in in Ephesians 3, about his prayer for all believers that they would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. If you ever get hung up on on the teaching that that God loves you as you are in Christ, in other words, if if, if we ever want to complain, why, why can't God love me for me? Why does it take Christ for God to love me? Well, well, just remember this, that yes, God loves you as you are in Christ, but He gave His beloved Son for you out of His love for you as a sinner. So let us humble ourselves before the love of God. Would we have God love us more than the Father loves the Son? And yet he gave his beloved son even to the sacrifice of the cross so that we might be saved. But going back to Joseph, the the beloved son of Jacob, and and, and here's the point to see that as much as we see of Jesus in Joseph, yet this is not an allegory. We're not going to, we want to be careful not to make it an allegory, which is to say this is not a story in which every aspect of the story matches some greater reality. The reason Jacob loved Joseph was, as, as verse 3 makes clear, because he was the son of his old age. The other reason, not explicitly mentioned here, was that Joseph was the son of his beloved wife, his his favorite wife. But the reason God the Father loves his son is, first of all, because he loves himself. And as Jesus himself said, he and the Father are one. Here is the mystery of the Trinity, that even as we make a a distinction between the Father and the Son, and, and we make that distinction because Scripture makes it, Yet even so, there, there is only one God, as God's Word also makes clear. Um, uh, the liberals make this mistake as they complain that an earthly father does not give his son to die for others. Uh, wouldn't that be child abuse, they say. But what they deliberately seem to ignore are the words of Jesus, I and the Father are one. The cross was the sacrifice for sin made by one God on behalf of his people. And even as the father gives the son whom he loves, and even as the son willingly took the saving work upon himself to do, so we are meant to understand. May God give us by his spirit to understand truly, truly how great uh, 
is the Father's love for us. It is indeed a love that surpasses knowledge. But we also see Jesus and Joseph in this, that that he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. That that seems like a a strange reference, and, and it is strange in a way, because why is there no reference to Leah? Rachel, we know, is dead, having died in childbirth as Benjamin was born. Uh, but why are Jacob's wives only listed as two, Bilhah and Zilpah? It would seem to make a distinction, or it would seem to, to show us that a distinction was being made within the family between the sons of Jacob born to his actual wives and the sons born to his servant wives. Only here is Joseph growing up and working with the sons of the servant wives, even though he was the son of the favorite wife. It was probably because of his young age to be assigned to work with the the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Uh, But but we can can see, can we not, in this, that, that although he was the beloved son, even the beloved son of God the Father, yet... Jesus humbled himself. He, he visited the temple, do you remember, as a boy, and, 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 and he established, he, he, he showed where he might have spent his life. But when he began his ministry, where did he go? Did he, did he go to the temple and claim a place there? No, he went to the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and he called four fishermen to be his first disciples. Later, he would call others who were also very common men without impressive reputation, including a sordid tax collector named Matthew. Then we see Jesus and Joseph by the work that Joseph did. He was a shepherd. And here the condescension and humility of Christ fits not only with Joseph as a shepherd uh, or with Joseph as a shepherd, but with God himself uh, as a shepherd to his people. Uh, As much as we see Jesus in Psalm 23, we've recently talked about this several times, uh, as much as we see Jesus in Psalm 23, we also need to see that, that when it says, the Lord is my shepherd, again, it's Lord in all capital letters, which means that it's actually saying, Yahweh is my shepherd. So here is God, long before the coming of Christ, condescending to take the lesser role in in many respects, even the least role of a shepherd, revealing himself as a common laborer, taking care of his people day by day. Therefore, when Jesus came saying, I am the good shepherd, he was not only claiming to be the, the shepherd of Psalm 23, he was humbling himself even as he claimed to be God himself even the divine Son in the flesh of man. And so this too we we see in in Joseph. He he was the favored son. He was the beloved son. And yet he worked with his lesser brothers, we might say, and he worked as a shepherd. However, there is reason to understand from the text that he 
was the one in charge of his lesser brothers, even as Jesus was Lord and Master to his disciples. Uh, Some scholars comment uh, on this passage, suggesting that when Jacob brought the bad report to his father, uh, uh, I'm sorry, when Joseph brought the bad report to his father Jacob uh, concerning his brothers, that, that he was simply doing his job. He was in charge. He was the foreman, we might say. Uh, There is debate among commentators whether Jacob was was being a a tattletale uh, or whether he was simply doing his job as the foreman of the team. But if we give Joseph the benefit of the doubt that he was just doing his job, then here, too, we, we can see Jesus. Because Jesus brought conviction to the hearts of those who knew him. It it was one of the reasons why so many hated him and why in the end all cried, crucify him. It was much like we don't like to be around people who are better than we are because it makes us feel small and it accentuates our, our own weakness. Jesus was the only man who ever lived a perfect life. He was the beloved son, and and he was also the righteous one, as the apostle John calls him. Well, next we are told of the dreams that Joseph had. The the second point is Joseph's dreams. Two dreams, uh, both of them with the same meaning, a a meaning that did not escape uh, the uh, brothers and even Jacob himself when Joseph told them his dreams. Uh, In the first dream, Joseph and his brothers were binding sheaves uh, in the field. Maybe, especially for the sake of the children, uh, a sheave is a, or a sheaf is a bundle of wheat uh, or perhaps some other grain uh, after it is is cut from the ground. Uh, The the, the ripened plants are cut with a a long swinging blade so that the, the plants just fall over. And, uh, and then they need to be gathered and, and, and tied together. Uh, it's like if you, if you spilled a box of pencils and then uh, pick them up, uh, holding them in one hand while you put a rubber band around uh, the bundle of them uh, with the other hand. Oh, well, so they were binding sheaves, not with rubber bands, of course, but uh, they were binding sheaves uh, in the field, uh, said Jacob. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. The second dream was much the same, uh, although with with these differences, that that now it was not sheaves in the field, but the sun, moon, and stars in the sky. And now it wasn't just in reference to his brothers, but also to his mother and father, and and that they all gathered around him and even bowed down to him. Brothers of Joseph did not uh, miss the meaning, and uh, they were not at all happy to hear uh, his dreams. Uh, We should remember that uh, in those days it was not uncommon for God to give a prophetic revelation by way of a dream. In our own day, we understand that such revelations have ceased and that God now speaks through his written word, the Bible. But Joseph's brothers understood not only the dreams, but also that the dreams were that that dreams in general were often prophetic. Jacob himself also understood the dream and even rebuked Joseph for telling his dream. 
But we are also told this, that his father kept the saying in mind. Again, this shows us that dreams were often significant. Uh, he, was, he was not at all happy to hear the idea that, uh, that even he would bow down to his own son. But, but as he rebuked Joseph, yet he kept the saying in mind. And should he have rebuked Joseph? In other words, was Joseph being proud and boastful and overbearing by telling his dreams to his brothers and his father? Uh, Here, too, there is some debate among uh, the scholars and commentators. Uh, Joseph's repeated use of the word behold, as he told his dreams, might suggest that indeed he he was bragging. Behold, look, mind you, listen to this. And he kept saying it over and over. You will one day bow down to me. It's just that it could have been otherwise. Uh, And the text doesn't make it abundantly clear. Joseph might have simply been disturbed by the dreams he had and uh, wanted to see what the rest of his family thought. However, uh, might he have just spoken to his father uh, or with one of his brothers instead of uh, announcing, as it seems he did, his dreams to the whole family at once. Well, we'll leave the debate to the scholars and maybe to your discussions uh, afterward and move to a third point, an authority begrudged. If we choose to fault Joseph for telling his dreams, then we ought to recognize the poor response of his brothers as well and even his father. As for his brothers, the fault begins with how they hated their brother even before the dreams. But by way of the dreams, we are told that they hated him all the more at the thought that Joseph would one day stand in authority over them, they even bowing down to him. And if we're honest about ourselves, uh, we must admit that we too tend to respond to authority begrudgingly. And why is that? Why do we begrudge authority? Why is the word authority heard so often as a bad word? Well, the answer, I think, is, of course, first of all, pride. We are prideful. We are proud. uh, And and we want to be lords unto ourselves. Why should anyone be able to tell us what to do? We see it from a very young age in our children as they push back against the authority of their parents and sometimes even rebel outright. But it never really goes away, does it? Because even for adults, uh, even when authority is accepted as a necessity in life, uh, there is still that resentment for it. Okay, you're in charge, but I don't have to like it whether it's the boss or foreman at work or the police officer or the government official or the IRS. We're coming up on crunch time for taxes, right? We accept the authority, but only because we have to. So Joseph had two dreams to indicate that he would one day stand in authority over not just his brothers, but his whole family, so that his brothers hated him all the more and his father rebuked him. And it might seem quite strange to ask the question, but why didn't they respond differently? Why did they immediately resent his dreams and hate Joseph for telling his dreams? Why not instead see that this might be a good thing? Are not those in authority put in authority to be a blessing to those under their authority? 
And indeed, do we ever think this way? Because the boss or the foreman has authority over us, we have a job and can hopefully do our job better, along with others working beside us. Because the government official is ruling, doing his job, there is greater stability within the community. Because the police officer is patrolling the streets with authority, we feel safer against the threat of those who would do us wrong and even do us bodily harm. Authority is so often heard as a bad word, but we need merely to stop and think for half a second to recognize the blessing that authority is to us. Well, I don't want to spoil the story, but again, uh, I, I think it's likely that we all know what happens in the life of Joseph. His dreams do come true as he later comes to be a great ruler in Egypt and as the day arrives when his family comes and bows down before him. And as he becomes a great blessing to them, even saving their lives by way of his authority. And so it is with Jesus. As he came into this world, as he began his ministry, he exercised a great authority. We hear of his authority by way of his own claims. Uh, John 5.27 says, or there Jesus says, For as the Father has life in, in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. But what did Jesus do with his authority? He used his authority to do the work by which he became our Savior. In John 10, verse 18, it says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority, said Jesus, to lay it down. And I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And so we see the authority of Jesus also in his preaching. Uh, When he finished uh, his preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew tells us that uh, the people were amazed because he spoke with authority. And we see his authority as he cast out demons, commanding them to go so that they went. And in the end, we see his authority at the cross, where indeed no one killed him, so much as he, with authority, laid down his life for sinners. And in his his resurrection, when he, having laid down his life with authority, took it back up again. Brothers and sisters, in the end, you can't have a Christ without authority, not if you would have the true Christ. Too often, as we begrudge authority, Generally, so we begrudge the very authority of Jesus. But we must see that unless he has authority, he cannot be and he will not be anyone who can save us from our sins. And so finally, the salvation of submission. That is finally what faith is. Faith is submission to the Savior who has authority to save us. At its core, saving faith is submission to the authority of Christ. We cannot have Jesus as our Savior without bowing down to Him, without recognizing and acknowledging and confessing His authority over us. 
And why wouldn't we gladly submit to his authority when it's by his authority that he saves us from our sins? It's because of our pride. In fact, our pride is so great that left to ourselves, we will go our own way along the pathway to hell rather than have to submit to Jesus as our Savior. We want to be Lord unto ourselves. We are, we are wise in our own eyes, and we want to be Lord over our own life. At best, we might think to share the Lordship with Jesus, but that's not faith. So let us submit, firstly, let us submit and be saved, and let us submit, firstly, to his charge of sin against us. To know Jesus by his life and teaching is to know him as the sinless one and to know ourselves as the sinful ones. We must bow the knee and plead guilty. And let us submit in faith to his call, his call to believe in him. And let us do so with, with, with a clear understanding that, that to believe in him is to, is to come to him and to rest in him. With authority, Jesus issues the call to sinners to believe, even more to come, and in coming to him, to rest in him, trusting that he has done, with authority, he has done what must be done for our salvation. The brothers of Joseph resented the thought of bowing down to him, but if only they knew that, yes, Joseph would rule over them, but that his authority, his rule, and their bowing down to him would be their salvation. And it's the same with you and me as sinners before Christ. Pride will be our downfall, even our eternal condemnation. But submission to Jesus, to his saving authority, will be our salvation. So let us hear, let us believe, let us come, and let us bow down to Jesus even as we rejoice in his authority to save us. Amen. Please pray with me. Oh Lord, today we begin the story of Joseph. We pray that it will be a delightful time in your word over the next several weeks as we get to see so clearly our our Lord Jesus, in the life of Joseph, we do pray that we'll grow in our knowledge of Christ and our appreciation for him and what he's done for us. Lord, grow us each in our faith. And for those who have yet to come to faith, bring them, bring them, O Lord, to come, to believe, to bow the knee, and to be saved by a saving faith in Jesus Christ. In his name we pray, amen.